0: Right. So uh, in early 2020, uh, I came across a man sharing some slides of biological material on his computer uh, with a crazy theory about viruses not existing. And it uh, it took me a couple months of of mulling it over. And, you know, I watched more videos and, and then, you know, picked up some books. I read Tom Cowan's The Contagion Myth. And, um, you know, before long, I was ready to discard Germ theory and uh, the notion of viruses forever. And uh, the man in that video is, of course, my guest today, uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Uh, Dr. Kaufman is a natural healing consultant, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. Uh, He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina and has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. Uh, Thanks so much for being here.
1: My pleasure, Patrick. It's nice to be here with you. Uh, So I'm guessing that you haven't changed your position on viruses at this point. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I would have to be confronted with new evidence in order to change my opinion. And of course, I'm always willing to do that because uh, that's really what led me to this position in the first place. But there certainly hasn't been any uh, new or different type of evidence put forth uh, to uh, demonstrate the existence of uh, disease-causing viruses. So it seems fairly obvious,
0: f- for me at least, you know, uh, having studied this stuff for about two years now, um, what do you think it is with, I mean, there's still a lot of people who um, are just not catching on. Um, what do you think the first step is for people who are, aren't there yet? I mean, do you point them to a to a paper? Do you send them to, to Corman Drosten? I mean, what, what's your uh, opinion on that?
1: Yeah, well, um, so I did actually uh, collaborate with Tom Cowan and Sally Fallon to write um, an introductory article, if you will, called The Statement on Virus Isolation, and it's available on my website, and uh, it has thousands of uh, signatures of people who agree with it, and it basically just gives the argument about why there is no actual evidence of the existence of disease-causing viruses in a very step-by-step manner. The the thing about understanding what is in the published science and in the scientific mainstream, Patrick, is that you have to actually go and read the methods section of the articles that are published, because that's where they describe the experiments that they're conducting. And it's really a key thing because it's been shown even by mainstream researchers um, published in a highly prestigious journal like PLOS-1, that more than half of all the published research findings are actually false when scrutinized. So if you're going to you know, start looking at this body of scientific evidence and have a reasonable chance of getting at what's true, in other words, separating the wheat from the chaff, because we know at least half of it is chaff. So in order to do that, we have to read the methods of the procedures, uh, you know, of the experiments that they're actually doing. And that's what I explain in the SOBI statement is that the experiments that they say um, prove the existence of a virus actually don't do that or not even come close. They just basically show um, a laboratory procedure that gives them the proof of a virus, whether they have a virus in the experiment or not. And it's very convenient. And, you know, somehow all the entire field of virology, it seems, is completely misled. But there are many precedents for that. Um, Doctors have been misled or incorrect about major important findings. And then they discover the truth at some point and shift their opinion. But this hasn't happened in virology because it's extremely lucrative because all of this is what drives the vaccine industry, which is, you know, second to the chemotherapy industry or the cancer industry as being the, the, one of the biggest moneymakers in medicine. Right. They certainly have a financial
0: stake in it for sure. Um, I think a lot of people discount. Um, so we have Omicron now, and can you, can you give a brief breakdown for people who are not familiar uh, on how they're, they're coming up with these, these variants, how, how, how this keeps on happening?
1: Absolutely. So this is essentially just a computer simulation that has already been repeated over 5 million times. So what happened is, is that uh, a group of researchers started off and they took a sample of someone's lung fluid, didn't take it from a virus or a virus culture or anything, had like 50 somewhat million little tiny fragments of genetic material that they don't know where they came from. There was never demonstration of a virus in the experiment at all. They just used a PCR test and then put these 50 million sequences into a computer, made it look like a viral genome and spit it out and said, this is the genome of the virus. And this is called an in silico genome, which is the word for the computer simulation. And then what they've done is they've repeated the experiment 5 million plus times. And uh, a lot of those have been done in the United States and the United Kingdom, but also throughout the world. And each time they do this simulation, they get a slightly different result because it's not a valid reproducible experiment. And that different result, they explain away instead of realizing that it didn't validate their original experiment they say that it represents a mutation or a variant in the you know, virus population. And then they occasionally pick out, out of this pool of 5 million variants, one here or there, name it with you know uh, a name that has hidden messages in it, <laughs> um, and then figure out a way to use it or manipulate the information to scare people into whatever they want. And it seems that the Omicron scare is about, you know, convincing people or coercing them to get another booster shot. Any um,
0: ideas on the hidden meaning behind Omicron since you mentioned it?
1: (laughs) Well, I I know, you know, there are uh, some interesting things from the esoteric uh, study of this that have come out. So one is, you know, the anagram that if you rearrange the letters of Omicron, you can spell moronic. (laughs) And interestingly, if you take Delta and Omicron together, and rearrange the letters, you can spell mind control. Oh, I thought it was media control. Is, or is it both? Um, well, it couldn't be both. But oh. uh, we certainly uh, someone can look at it. I didn't look at that one myself and rearrange the letters. Okay. So it could be media control. But nonetheless, the meaning is uh, very similar. Right. Then there's also the um, several books that came out within two weeks of the announcement of the existence of omicron right right before there was even one scientific paper published or or put out early for review there were already books written and at least one of those books was copyrighted um prior to the discovery of the omicron variant wasn't so, really so so that yes so there's some strange stuff and people can find that book on amazon by the way and and uh people posted images of the copyright Pay You know, date on the title page, so that you can see for yourself, but obviously it would be impossible to write a book about a brand new thing when there's no information available in and publish the book and have it for sale in a two week period <laughs> <laughs> right. right so even the most pro even agatha christie couldn't do that one uh, <laughs> right No one can put out uh, uh, material that fast, so there are some strange things and but what I find the most disturbing is actually. The World Health Organization, when they put out their initial announcement classifying Omicron as a, you know, quote, variant of concern, their justification for that is based on redefining what a positive PCR test is. So in other words, what they did is the the way the PCR test uh, generally works is that there are three different primers or target markers that they're looking for. And they're in the three different genes that they say are present in a this fake virus. And you would have to have all three of these markers positive to give a positive test. Now, what they said is that the Omicron variant had a lot of mutations, over 30 mutations in the S gene, which supposedly makes the, the engineered spike protein. And so that that marker in the PCR test would be negative in the Omicron. So here's what, where the trick is. So now say, they decided that if you have the other two are positive and that one's negative, previously that would give you a negative test overall, they converted that to a positive Omicron test. Hmm. So in other words, they just changed the definition of what a positive test is and they change negative results to positive, saying that they're positive for Omicron. And this is the same thing like Dr. Tom Cowan made a great analogy. If um, you were looking at the number of millionaires in a city, and let's say you had 100 millionaires uh, right in the small city. Now, what if you suddenly changed the definition that to be a millionaire, you only needed to have $500,000? Well, obviously, there would be an increase in the number of millionaires, right? But there there would be no actual difference in the wealth of people. But now you would say that there is 500 millionaires instead of 100. And this is what they did with the test. They took a negative test for, you know, the boilerplate COVID, a virus. And then they said, if it's negative but has two out of three positive, now we're going to call that a positive test for this new variant, Om- Omicron. And that increased the overall number of cases because you're converting negative tests to positives. So that increased the uh, burden of cases, which allowed the World Health Organization to call it a variant of concern. So all they did was a statistical trick, um, but actually nothing has changed. Sounds a a lot like their MO uh,
0: throughout this this whole ordeal. Um so is this what they're
1: calling the new multiplex test or is that something different? Um, I um, I think that is something different, but I'm not sure what that is. I haven't seen any uh, literature on it yet. Okay. Because the, the PCR test is supposedly expired
0: at this point, but they're still using it. I mean, here in New York City, uh, I mean, I saw like four or five tenths within a block or two of P, you know PCR testing said right on the front. So... I'm wondering how they're still using that if they
1: pulled it. Well, so I think what you're referring to is an uh, article on the CDC website that was put up, I believe, last summer sometime that said the emergency use, because people should know that there there are no diagnostic tests that have been approved for use, right? Okay. And they couldn't even apply for that because they haven't done basic validation studies. So these, these tests are completely meaningless, but they're all allowed to be sold under this emergency use authorization. And this is why the federal government has to keep uh, the state of emergency renewed, even when all the states cancel their states of emergency, in order to keep the EUA active. Otherwise, they couldn't sell those products. And so in this CDC article from last summer, they said that they planned to withdraw the EUA for the PCR test. And they weren't clear exactly which one because they're each company that manufactures a test that is given an EUA letter. So there are many, many different ones. And on the FDA website, you can actually find all the current approved, or sorry, authorized under EUA uh, tests that are on the market. And it still includes the PCR test. So they said that this was going to happen at the end of December, but then there have been no new announcements about that they're actually enacting this policy and no apparent change that we can see. But you know, whenever they want to change something like this, they uh, want it to give different results, and it's a way to manipulate things. Because as I you know said, that none of these things even have undergone a basic clinical validation study, and that's normally the first step that you need to develop a diagnostic test, and it's the first thing that's listed on the FDA application for a diagnostic medical device. Wow, so to step back a little bit,
0: um, when they're these, these genes that they're testing for, what, what exactly are the, are these things, these are things already in everybody's body that they're essentially testing for?
1: Well, the, the truth is, so first of all, the, you know, you got to look at the PCR is not a test. Right. What it does is it amplifies uh, sequences of genetic material, but each time it, it amplifies them, it creates error. So there's error in the signal the more times you amplify it. so And then also it's not a like a black or white test um, because you have to decide what level of copies of, of a sequence you're looking for is a positive test. Right. In other words, it's not like you have a glass and it's either full or empty. It's more like if I asked you, Patrick, what temperature is it cold? <laughs> like what temperature does it co- does it change from hot to cold?
0: Hard, hard to specify, but maybe. 70 right. Well, not <laughs> not
1: hard, actually yeah. impossible. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. um, because it's a, a it's a continuum. So it's the same thing with the PCR test. It, it, you know, tries to find this target sequence and then makes a doubling of it each round, each cycle of the PCR. And then you do a certain number of cycles and then you have to say, okay, how many, how much of this sequence is a positive result? And you have to make that, you know, determination arbitrarily so it could be 100 it could be 500 it could be 50,000 it could be a million right where do you draw that line obviously if you draw the line in one direction you get many more positive results if you draw it in the other direction you get many more negative results and this allows you to easily manipulate the set of results that you get when you apply this procedure to a population and if you change the parameters of how you conduct the test, you can then get new results. So for example, if you want to show that there are more cases to be able to coerce people into doing something like locking down or getting a booster shot, you can easily change the parameters to increase the number of positives. If you want to show that a booster is effective and have the case numbers go down, you can easily manipulate the Testing procedures to decrease the number of positives in the pool. And this is all going on behind the scenes because there's no standardized protocol to carry out um, these procedures. They're changed from country to country, from city to city, from town to town, from lab to lab. And it's not even clear who is directing them how to run the tests. So, do you think,
0: you know, how how are doctors? Missing this? Uh, Are they just, you know, like virology, not really looking into it, not reading up on it, and just kind of accepting it as true?
1: Well, I think it depends on who you're referring to. But I'll tell you that, um, first of all, you know, the doctors that are actually still working are, you know, willfully keeping a blind eye to what's going on. And at this point, there's really, in my opinion, no excuse for them not to be speaking out about what they observe. Now, many of them are just misinterpreting what they're seeing like there's you know seeing people with the flu but thinking that they have covid and you know kind of thinking that there's some kind of uh thing going on that they're doing special that's different from other years and then you have the doctors who are you know in the freedom movement that are talking out about that the vaccines are dangerous but they are also talking as if you know viruses are real and COVID is real And I've tried to, you know, reach out to some of them. But in general, in my opinion, they're simply not willing to actually look at the scientific experiments like they're not willing to question things. They're only willing to question things at the level of, you know, there's um, a lack of safety and efficacy for the vaccine or, you know, there's clearly uh, something going on here, uh, manipulating people, but it but it's not that deep you know and right. it makes me wonder so you know for some of those people you know is there a purpose do they want to keep you know the idea of scary viruses alive and you know when they talk about things that create a lot of fear it definitely makes me concerned and one of those issues is the so-called pathogenic priming or antibody dependent enhancement right which is this theory that's been thrown around saying that if if you've been, you know, immunized um, against this fake virus, and then you're exposed to the fake virus in reality, that you're going to have a really severe immune reaction, because the vaccine primed your immune system. And you hear lots of doctors talking about this and other, you know, prominent figures. And of course, it creates a lot of fear, because there are predictions that, you know, lots and lots of people are going to die during the flu season because of this particular problem. And they often quote that, you know, the animals died in the experiment, the ferrets died, right? You, you pro- I'm sure you've heard that Patrick. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is a complete fabrication. Okay. So there I've looked at every single paper all the way back to the 1960s when this possibility was first proposed And there's actually nothing credible in any of these studies. So none of these animals died in any of these studies. They were all sacrificed and autopsied and none of them were even sick. So this is not, not a real thing, but it's put out there and it keeps you believing in viruses and it keeps you afraid that bad things are going to happen. And it's, it can be very destructive. So, you know, what I would do is just urge anyone out there, to just look at the primary research papers, the ones that you know claim to prove the existence of a virus and read the methods section. Anyone who's been willing to sit with me and do this has seen the light because it's glaringly obvious once you look at the experiments. you You know, it's only when you refuse to look at what the actual science is that you're going to be ignorant and keep this, uh, you know, sort of mythology of uh, viruses alive. And of course, that, that is, uh, you know, a very dangerous proposition, uh, given the situation that we're experiencing right now.
0: Right. It's certainly not science uh, standing in one place and, and not uh, continuously trying to disprove yourself. Um, and I, I am also very aggravated at, at at people who are unwilling to look at the information and that, you know, these people have a really large following right now. Everybody's watching uh, Joe Rogan's interview with um, Dr. Malone, I believe it is. Um, and yeah, there were two big
1: interviews um, with Robert Malone and Peter McCullough.
0: Yes. Those are two big ones for me. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I've seen McCullough, uh, you know, turn down debates and just be completely unwilling, um, to, to look at any evidence. And, you know, of course, Malone is on Joe Rogan talking about his new, his new pharma drugs. (laughs) So he's obviously has a stake in, uh, continuing this, this kind of narrative, but he's sort of posing as, you know, a truth speaker at the same time. And, um, yeah, so I think people need to be very very careful about who they who they listen to and where they're getting their their information
1: from. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the the bigger the platform and the more widespread publicity, you know, someone in this movement gets, you know, I become more skeptical about the veracity of their message and you know, certainly uh, Robert Malone is an insider. I mean, he's the one who developed the mRNA technology or a key aspect of it. Um, And he didn't recognize the dangers of it at that time. So it is good to hear him, you know, talk about that now. But yes, I don't know what other agendas might be present. And certainly, you know, I've examined um, my own observations, practicing allopathic medicine as, as a psychiatrist, but also I worked in oncology as a physician assistant for two years. So I saw a lot of medicine, a lot of different areas of medicine. And I know that pharmaceuticals are not a way to health. In fact, just the opposite. They work against the body's healing mechanisms to perpetuate disease. So, you know, I got to the point where I had to leave allopathic medicine because, you know i realized that it was responsible most likely for the being the number one cause of death in our population and i'm talking about more deaths than cancer more deaths than heart disease more deaths than respiratory disease wow and this you know largely comes from the mainstream research industry like johns hopkins quarter of a million deaths from medical errors a year, according to Johns Hopkins University. Right, that already uh, puts them as the third leading cause of death, but the CDC doesn't report these as causes of death on their website. And then you combine that with pharmaceutical deaths, 150 to 200,000 a year, that's been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and elsewhere. And these things don't count vaccine deaths. They don't count chemotherapy deaths. So, you know, one time, Patrick, I looked into a simple issue related to diabetes medications, because when I used to work in a psychiatric emergency department, I noticed that there were a lot of people with issues where their blood sugar went too low. And it was like, that's a life-threatening emergency. Right. So just to review, diabetes is when you can't manage the sugar in your body and your blood sugar goes high. And that over time, right, is damages all your organs and causes lots of of uh, disability and disease. And so there are various pharmaceuticals given to lower the blood sugar, Mm -hmm. but often they overshoot. And I've seen this play out where many uh, doctors who manage diabetes are very, very aggressive. And so if they overshoot, though, you could be dead in a matter of minutes. Hmm. So I looked at, and there's no data on this, but, but if you ask ambulance drivers or, you know, paramedics, EMTs, they'll tell you that once a shift, they get a call that's someone whose blood sugar is bottomed out and it's a life-threatening emergency. And I looked at for data on this, and there was no systematic data at all. But what I did find is that something like 1% of all emergency department visits in the United States are for low blood sugar. So in other words, that means there's got to be a major number of deaths from that. And this is something that is kind of totally under the radar. It's not reported as a major concern. All of the health practitioners who manage people with diabetes are you know, not keeping this in mind. They're not providing the degree of education. They're not being conservative on the doses. Over time, they've been more and more aggressive, and this problem is, has heightened. So this is just one little thing you know, to highlight um, the overall state of uh, what is the practice of allopathic medicine. So you have these folks who are entrenched in this model and not willing to fully examine the truth of it and exit that, you know, whether that be too risky, that their identity is too closely tied to that, you know, being that white-coated doctor that everyone respects and looks up to. Right. And many of these people are in, you know, they're highly respected in within their profession in the public eye. They've, you know, given uh, gotten awards and given testimony in front of important bodies of influential individuals and, and such. So it, it's a lot to try to challenge all that. But it's really necessary uh, because all of these establishments are falling apart. They're undergoing, uh, you know, major destruction. And that is going to be uh you know, paramount in the whole medicine apparatus. Correct. Absolutely true. And I can't help
0: but think about, you know, just in your last statement there, you know, you you mentioned all of these types of deaths that we don't really think about on a day-to-day basis. And would you say it's accurate that um, they're kind of just shining a light on, all of those things that we always had and and then shoving them into these supposed COVID deaths now, because uh, I think people weren't aware of, you know, uh, medical error and diabetes deaths and, and all of these things on a day-to-day basis before the, you know, all of this happened, people weren't thinking about that actively.
1: Well, you know, People generally, right, are not actively thinking about anything important. (laughs) They're they're usually (laughs) distracting themselves with, you know, TV and sports and video games and and uh, the internet, yeah. uh, Rather than doing this research, but uh, there certainly are people in the healthcare and alternative healthcare area who have been, you know, talking a lot about this, and it's been out there in in the public realm. But of course, everyone's focused much more acutely on health right now, and this is a a golden opportunity to, you know, make a decision that we're going to exit that system of toxic medicine and that we're going to actualize and materialize um, a new, uh, you know, what I call true medicine uh, system where people, generally speaking, can manage their own health. There's, there's really few times when you really need an expert practitioner, and even fewer times that you need a surgeon, although that might occasionally come up, uh, you know, in a severe trauma or a malformation, or, you know, you uh, saw off your finger, and you need someone to reattach it. Um, You know, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) But uh, most people, really, you know, all the normal situations, uh, they can handle if they had a little bit of knowledge and training. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do now is establish in my own you know small way, my, my contribution, uh, all these resources to move into a new era of healing for the people who are ready to take responsibility for their own health. And this involves me developing a, a detox course, which is gonna come out in a couple of months. Um, I set up uh, this platform called True Medicine University, which we're creating essentially a repository of uh, really um, scientific information related to health that, um, you know puts aside these antiquated and fraudulent models and is looking for the, what's the real truth of biology, what's the real truth of health and healing. And you know, then my, my clinical work, we're going gonna, gonna to be uh, opening a clinic where there're there going to be apprentices who are medical doctors who are leaving that system and training in real natural healing. And so, you know, this is a a way that we can bring about this shift by simply disengaging from, you know, that tyrannical uh, public health surveillance system that they call a medical system, right, which is really a, a death cult. And we can, you know, get into that in more detail if you like. And into this new, you know, kind of era of, of true healing, of true medicine, of realizing that your body is actually what heals you. And it has all the wisdom to do that. And you can get out of its way and support what it needs to do. And that is the way to restore health. And so, you know, everyone who wants to make this shift and and not just in health, but in whatever Feel that you're passionate about, or that involves your day to day life, this is the time, you know, to bring about this change, and this is what it will lead us to, a, you know, future of uh, plentiful resources, of uh, cooperation, of returning to our own authority as individual men and women, and maintaining and preserving our freedom through enacting our own responsibility.
0: That sounds amazing, and I think that. That truly is the way to, to disengage rather than try to fight a, a broken system. Um, well, there's, you
1: know, there, there's reason to stand up for yourself and, you know, not saying fight to fix the system, but fight to stand up for your rights and let the system know that you will not be corrupted, you will not be coerced into compliance. Right. And I think that that is an important statement uh, to make. Uh, not everyone has to make that, you know, fervently, but, but, you know, that's not exactly kind of fighting to, you know, preserve the system. That's more saying, you know, you can't push me around no matter how, you know, things change. I'll just walk away.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Then non, non-compliance and not letting people push you around absolutely needs to happen Right now, um, I wanted to ask you about um, the 5G issue. I know you've been sort of uh, maybe skeptical about this in the past, so I don't know where you stand on it now. Um, you know, a lot of people, fi- believe, 5G had a part to play in. You know, at least the maybe the rush to the hospital in 2020, or I, I'm, I'm not really sure, even myself. But, you know, it's interesting how there is always like a new technology, a new frequency with every pandemic. And I wondered, you know, what you think, uh, what role did that play, if any, or is it playing
1: now? Well, let me say that, you know, there's no evidence of a new disease at all. So, you know, if you're looking for something to explain a new disease and there is no new disease, then there's no explanation. So we can just put that aside right now. And, and I'll tell you that what for me, what the most compelling data um, is, you know, first of all, there's no distinctive way to identify someone that has a new disease. So we can't say there is one, right? There's no test. There's no unique symptoms, no unique autopsy findings, nothing unique to say someone has a new disease. But also there, if you look at death benefit claims from insurance policies, you see there's no increase in death benefits, at least until the vaccines started rolling out, then you see increase in death claims, um, especially in the younger population. And and this is just coming out now this information. So, you know, so there might have been people who experienced what they felt was an unusual disease over the past couple of years. But that's because everyone thinks there's something new. And you're looking through that lens Um, But even if there was, you know, some people had something different, the, you know, the flu is always different. And there are different toxins in the environment that could bring it about. But there's no evidence that, you know, 5G was turned on somewhere, and then a bunch of people got sick. Now, there is a relationship between the pandemic and 5G, however, because it caused an acceleration in the development of the 5G infrastructure. So when everything was, you know, locked down, Um, essential businesses only, Um, infrastructure for 5G was put down, you know, like at a feverish pace, they had shifts around the clock, they had people waiting to be called in in case someone dropped dead on the work site. I mean, it was really intense. And then, of course, the Starlink, um, uh, you know, satellites or whatever those are, that's related to 5G started being deployed as well. So now, why would these things happen, you know, when everyone's focused on a public health emergency? uh, There must be another agenda. Now, if you look at the, you know, the big agendas from the globalist groups like the UN and the World Economic Forum and the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, etc., you'll see that the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies are really important principles to bring about their globalist control system. And so they need the 5G infrastructure to be able to carry that out. And so I think, really, that's what's going on. Now, can 5G have detrimental health effects? Absolutely, as can 4G, as does uh, you know um, Wi-Fi, as does smart meters, um, and many other devices can have health effects. But they're fairly easy to mitigate, in most cases, in my experience. Can it be used as a weapon? Yes yeah in fact it the this kind of technology has been developed as a weapon yeah. um, does it can it have health detrimental effects absolutely there's evidence to show that it interferes with um organs being able to utilize oxygen uh It's been shown to damage DNA uh that was research out of Los Alamos looking at uh, terahertz waveforms so there's definitely a possibility of health effects but I haven't seen evidence that that's actually occurred in the real world um, to this point. So, you know, I think that the surveillance state that is going to require the 5g infrastructure is really the thing that I'm most concerned about. And do you believe that's all
0: connected to the vaccine? Um, do you believe in the nanotechnology and the vaccine, as far as the, the graphene and the, I mean, uh, you know, heard microbots are in, uh, in the vaccine. What's your experience with that?
1: So um, I've definitely looked at this uh, issue quite extensively. And I'm not entirely clear on exactly what are in these vials. And I think that there's a lot of variability. And I think it's very difficult scientifically to figure out what these things are. Mm-hmm. But they're, are definitely things in there that are not supposed to be there that we're not told are there and that have nefarious purposes. So what I've really done is I've just looked at all the scientific literature on nanotechnology related to biological and biomedical applications and found that they, there's a huge amount of research in this area. I found governmental uh, you know, policy statements that talk about human enhancement, that this is gonna be mandatory throughout the world, and that this interface of man and machine is coming. Obviously we see companies like Neuralink and others developing machine brain interfaces. We have um, technologies like uh, Magneto, which is a a magnetic uh, nanoparticle that is able to control expression of genetic materials. So, so-called so magnetogenetics, and they've used this to remotely control the behavior of zebrafish. Right. So there's uh, certainly a lot of patents and other uh, papers related to using various nanotechnology with vaccines or um, materials like graphene was in a nasal flu vaccine, for example. Mm. So it doesn't take a huge leap of faith to see that this is where things are going if they're not already there. You know, this is the plan. And you can you can look at other industry leaders like Ray Kurzweil, for example, who has written a book called The Singularity that talks about this and makes predictions. I mean, and and he is now the director of technology for Google. So, you know, obviously, this is an important future strategy, if that's what he's been talking about, and he's now running Google, then that must be what Google's planning to do, if they're not already doing it. So this is something, you know, absolutely that we have to take seriously, we have to do more research to see what exactly is going on at present. And, you know, first and foremost, we have to make sure that we never ever consider rolling up our sleeve um, and accepting any of this Experimental tech, and whatever they're going to get inside of us, they need to find some other way certainly,
0: and do you think that a whole mRNA thing is even uh, viable is that is that even is, is that just like a cover for the other <laughs> for, for something else?
1: D- does it really do what they say it's doing? Well, the truth is we really don't know because they haven't shown us that data, but you know and, and it's important to know that this is not really the way our genetics work. So what they tell us about, you know, DNA and genes coding for all the proteins in our body that simply couldn't be true because we don't have enough genes to code for all the proteins we have. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, just like germ theory gen- gene theory has to also be looked at and reformulated to see what's true about it. But what we do know is that whatever the real mechanism of the genetic machinery is, we know it, that it can be hacked by recombinant uh, DNA technology. And this is what, you know, GMO products are. Okay, okay this, the same technology that is put in the mRNA vaccine is used to make GMO seeds and other organisms. It's also used to manufacture many of the chemicals that are in the pharmaceutical and the food industry, for example, citric acid is manufactured from a genetically modified organism that the gene, you know, for an enzyme to make citric acid is put into an organism. And then it makes, uh, you know, an abundance of citric acid and that's purified and sold. Mm -hmm. So this is a, what I might consider a biohack. So they, this technologists know how to use, you know, genetics sequences to trick, or technology to trick an organism into making a protein or product that it doesn't normally make. And this is what the stated um, mechanism of action of these mRNA and DNA, you know, quote, unquote, vaccines. But what we don't have is the evidence that this gene product is actually made by people who receive it. So we don't really know. It's possible that really that is a smokescreen and it doesn't actually do that. And it just has other things in it that we're not told about. Yeah. Um, or it's possible that it really does do that. And that uh, much of the toxicity could be explained by direct toxic effects of spike protein made in a vaccine recipient.
0: Mm-hmm. So, But nobody's seen the spike protein, right? It, I mean, it's, I think it only- To is, my it's knowledge, it's hydro- there's
1: only one very small study from hydro- Canada that looked at like around a dozen people who received a Moderna injection Mm -hmm. and measured just in their blood if there was spike protein. But they used a very strange procedure. Uh, There's a, a very simple standard procedure to detect spike protein using a Western blot. And this group decided to use this really, really convoluted procedure And I'm not even sure if it's valid, but they did find some spike protein according to their results in some of the people for, I believe, up to seven days after the first injection and then not after that. So it's not very compelling, not comprehensive, and not fully trustworthy. You know, according to the regulatory pathway from the FDA for mRNA or DNA-based gene therapy, the manufacturers required to do what they call a shedding study and what that is is that they look and say is the foreign gene product from this gene therapy present in any body fluids of the recipient so if if we give you the injection are we going to find spike protein in your blood saliva urine you know feces semen sweat etc because if it's present in any of those bodily fluids you could theoretically pass it to another individual and that's the shedding issue and that could be unsafe depending on what the you know what the gene product is like spike protein is known to be toxic so if you're shedding that out into the environment it could potentially be toxic now because the fda changed the definition of a vaccine what they did is they allowed these technologies to not go through that gene therapy pathway. Instead, they go through the vaccine pathway, which of course had no protocol for this because that's not how vaccines work. And so they skipped doing the shedding studies. This was a really key for them to get authorized because in the past, when gene therapy has been put through the shedding protocol, it's it's resulted in, um, you know, uh, barriers to developing the drug, they've had bad outcomes. Hmm. And so by being able to skip that, it increased the chances of getting authorized quicker. And that's, that's the reason they did that. But that's why we're missing that data. You know, we don't have any studies that show actual spike protein being manufactured, you know, in someone who received one of these injections. Right the shedding thing is still such a
0: contentious issue. And to be honest, I've been uh, someone who I I just can't get on board with it because I don't know how it would logically work.
1: I mean, Patrick, if, if, if it were a real serious issue, we would have enough anecdotal evidence of people getting, you know, Bell's palsy, blood clots, cardiac events, right. From, being around vaccinated people like they would get the same toxic events that we would see from the directly injected right and it would and it would it would be serious right. i mean if it were serious we would know because we we're, we have lots of evidence of people who receive the injection having these problems right they yeah. do video testimony it's out there because you know it's not reported in the mainstream, there's no mandatory reporting or surveillance. It's all voluntary, but but we clearly see lots of evidence of that. But I don't see any evidence of anyone being seriously ill from shedding.
0: Right, neither do I. And I would think that it would have to be, you know, if there was something shedding, it would have to be in such great amount, you know, to affect somebody outside of your body that you would already be quite ill, if not dead, Right.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's, like it's a hard, it's hard kind of it. to really say, um, you know, because you're getting into a lot of speculation because we wouldn't necessarily know what the mechanism was, but we would just observe, you know, are people sick? And uh, if we don't even see people sick, then we can't say there's anything there.
0: Right. Fair enough. Um, I have just one or two more questions if you're okay on time. Um, sure. I wanted to ask you about. Um, Cellular theory. I've been hearing stuff about uh, Harold Hillman and how the cellular theory is possibly wrong, and I know almost nothing about it. But if that's the case, what what do we not know about uh, cellular theory, and how would that change
1: uh, medicine as we know it? Well, you know, it's it's good that you bring up these issues because you know what I've found is that there's always a layer deeper to go and question. And many things that we take for granted um, are not actually based on, on real evidence. So, you know, there's this typical model of a cell, you know, that's in most textbooks in biology, which shows all of these different structures. But it turns out that some of these structures uh, are most likely just artifacts of how tissue is processed for microscopes and not actual real things. So even the, you know, so I mean there there are some overarching um, uh, principles that you have to consider. So one thing is is that when you examine living organisms under the microscope, the way that it's done in modern, you know, official science is that all of the cells are dead. You never look at something living, and as you know from your own observation of seeing a dead body that our bodies change after we're no longer alive, yeah, right? Like rigor mortis, for example, and decomposition. So when we're looking at dead tissue under the microscope, how do we know that what we're looking at is the same as what it would be in a living organism? So just the fact that there are cells at all is not entirely clear, or that cells are the fundamental unit of organs. Like, for example, no one has ever looked at a living liver cell under the microscope in an an intact liver. Hmm. Right? We've only had a piece of tissue we've taken out of a liver, and then killed it, processed it with chemicals, and then look at it. We've never looked at a living liver, and to see if there are cells. So the truth is, you know, we don't even know if all of our organs are organized into cells. We do know that there are another type of structure that doesn't have cells called a syncytium. And there are something like 30 plus tissues in our body that are, it's already accepted that they exist as a syncytium and they don't have discrete cells. So is it possible that maybe our liver is really a syncytium. And what that is, is that there's no membrane separating individual cells. There are several nuclei in a bigger space. So it's kind of just like protoplasm. It's organized water in space, like a, like a big piece of jello, but mm-hmm. all these different things are happening in the chemistry of it. And, you know, so we don't really know which way it is. You know, another thing, the, the cell membrane, For example, you know that we've never actually um, shown a cell membrane, like (laughs) uh, nobody knows what it really is, what it's really made of, or what the structure, there are many different models of it. Most people have heard the lipid, phospholipid bilayer, but that's just a theory. There's never been, you know, um, a proof of that. They've never taken the membrane out of cells and, and examined it and showed that this is what it is. In fact, we don't even know if there really are membranes, and there are some really important questions about how the membrane works that we don't know the answer to, or what we're told is not correct. So if you want to, you know, really understand how living organisms work, you kind of have to start at the beginning to some degree, and question some of these basic premises, and then re-examine evidence. You know, there were several researchers in the 20th century who developed optical microscopes that could see incredible magnifications, like equivalent to what we can only see with an electron microscope. And electron microscopes are, you know, it's very hard to interpret biological material under the electron microscope because it has to be so highly processed and you're actually not even seeing any biological materials. You're seeing metals that have replaced the biological materials in the sample because you can only see metals. But sure. we had researchers like Royal Raymond Reif and like Gaston Nason's, who actually developed optical microscopes that were capable of seeing things the size of alleged viral particles, like in the nanometer range. Wow. But that you could visualize it while the tissue was living, so you could look at living blood cells, for example, under this microscope and see particles that small. And you know, both of the um, people I mentioned who developed this technology, the technology was destroyed by the authorities, and is not never spread to you know become widely used um, in any way. So that's a major, major limitation, and we would be so much ahead of the curve if we had technology like that, that we were able to look at living cells under the microscope, uh, we could learn so much more.
0: Seems like they desperately want to keep things in the realm of the dead, for sure. <laughs> it's frightening how limited uh, our view is. Um, so we know the role of of germs are opportunistic. I wanted to also ask you about um, your thoughts on parasites.
1: Do you think that they function the same way? Absolutely. And I wouldn't I wouldn't call them opportunistic though because that would imply they're trying to take advantage of a situation. Okay. Right? Like someone who's uh, selling cures for COVID right now is opportunistic. <laughs> um so what bacteria are is they just basically grow when the right environmental conditions are present or parasites or fungi or all these you know lower organisms or smaller creatures mm-hmm. and so if we create an environment that is the right conditions for a certain type of microorganism then they will grow it's really as simple as that and they're indifferent you know i mean they probably like it when resources are plentiful <laughs> yes. to some degree but they have no evil intent or or good intent they're just neutral they're just for performing their function in nature which is a vital vital function because they're first of all critical for our healing and maintenance of health and they're critical for really the survival of all other higher organisms because they take decaying and or dead you know biological material And recycle it, they reduce it back down to the elements, so that new life can utilize it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to be utilized and the resources of the planet would just, you know, run out. (laughs) So, you know, it's absolutely critical that we have these microorganisms and they they are not the cause of our disease, they they're actually the the healing uh, phase of our disease when we experience illness that is our body trying to restore health and those symptoms of you know secretions of diarrhea of fever right of skin uh, rashes that's our body trying to get rid of toxic waste and and the bacteria and fungi and parasites are critical to that operation Um, because not only do they sometimes ingest the waste itself but they they ingest the damaged tissue that uh from the waste and that allows the body to renew and and um uh you know have create new tissue repaired healthy Mm -hmm. tissue and that that's the process that's going on when we experience the symptoms of an illness so do they
0: stick around though once toxicity is gone once their job is done are they are they gone
1: yeah, absolutely. Like this whole, you know, mechanism is highly regulated in our body all the time. Um, you know, new microorganisms are being formed and then they're uh, regressing and going into quiescence. And, you know, most likely a lot of this is orchestrated by, by our immune cells. They, they really are managing all of the toxicity in the body. And that's a, a big part of it. Interesting. Okay, well, this is my
0: last question, and uh, you can answer it however you want. Uh, seeing as we're entrenched in, you know, material science, um, what do materialist you believe, science materialist right? science? Excuse me. Um, what is what does non-materialist science look like, and what is the best scientific evidence, if any, for the existence of God?
1: Well, you know that that's kind of. Uh, The existence of God is a tough one to apply science to. Um, Lots of people have tried to say, you know, prove that God doesn't exist. Uh, Of course, you can't um, prove a negative like that. Um, But if I were to, you know, just kind of talk about this in materialist versus non-materialist, because materialist reductionism, which is the, the main philosophy behind the modern Science establishment or scientism establishment Mm -hmm. is really, first of all, denies experimental important experimental evidence. Um, It takes our consciousness out of the equation. It is consistent with nihilism, right? It allows the cultural um, decay that has occurred over the last century. So there are many, many implications. Um, But the biggest thing is just that it really just denies the truth about how the natural world works. And I think one of the strongest um, pieces of experimental evidence for this is called the observer effect. And it comes from the double slit experiment, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And this experiment um, basically shoots a beam of electrons through two slits. And then there's a photographic plate that um, reacts from when the electrons hit it and shows a pattern of diffraction through the slits. And there are two potential patterns it could show. One is like a wave and one is like a particle. And this is the you know wave particle duality from quantum theory that we're all familiar with. But when there is no one present in this experiment's run, the photographic plate shows a mixture of both patterns. In other words, it shows all the potential of the electron to be either like a particle or like a wave. Now, here's the the kicker. When a human observes the experiment, the results change. Now, the electron commits to one path. They either see the pattern of a wave or they see the pattern of a particle. So, there's no physical influence on the experiment. The observer is not coming in there, and putting a mirror or a lens or any or a gas or any type of material. They're simply observing. And that's called the observer effect. So, in other words, the effect comes from our consciousness. And that would imply a higher power. So, you could say that you could reason that may be proof for the existence of God, but it's definitely the proof that there is a non-material aspect to humans that has an influence on the material world. Right. And if that's the case, you can then no longer ignore that from any observation in the material world. You have to consider, is there a non-material component, right? That is at play here. And that's what we have, you know, have not learned or integrated into the general body of scientific knowledge and experiments But we need to. And that that is, you know, a thing that I am taking into consideration when I'm talking about, you know, True Medicine University and creating this new body of knowledge is we have to account for aspects of consciousness um, and spirituality and I've already, you know, know that this is a key for healing, that not only can, you know, conflicts and traumas of the conscious spirit directly cause physical disease but if you don't address those aspects you you can never completely heal
0: makes a lot of sense excellent answer and um all right well i want to thank you so much for your for your continued efforts your work uh they certainly uh meant a lot to me mean a lot to me And um, yeah, I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks for for
1: taking the time. Well, thank you for the thoughtful discussion. And I really do appreciate your work. And uh, perhaps we can touch base again in the future. We'd love that very much. Thanks again. The information presented in this program is
0: not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. It is provided for informational purposes only. Alighton does not endorse nor accept responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions expressed by its guests.